welcome to Saltier Politics. Julie, you often debate our next guest. I, Tell us about him. I do. So Mike Duhame um, is a very good friend, and we have actually um, a, a column we do once a week um, called Friendly Fire in, in the Star Ledger over in New Jersey. And um, all I can say is in a day and age when ideology seems to really get in the way of friendship and really get in the way of of um, polite discourse. I can't tell you, Mike and I have known each other for a very long time. Um, I consider both him and his wife uh, friends. And I find it interesting that we don't have more of that now the way we used to. I mean, I'm not comparing us to Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, but those two used to hang out socially all the time back in the day and fight like hell um, on on the floor in, in the White House, but then at night be friends. And, and you don't much have that anymore. And I hope that more people can try to do what Mike and I do, which is, again, we disagree on policy quite a bit, but we are friends, and, and I'm so happy to have him on. He was the campaign manager for Rudy Giuliani um, in 2008 uh, when Rudy ran for president. He was the political director for Senator McCain's presidential campaign. Subsequent to that, um, he has been the political director of the RNC. He's been a consultant to the Republican National Senate Campaign Committee, the Congressional Committee, he is literally um, the go-to, one of the go-to people in the Republican Party for elections. And in addition to that, just a really great guy. So I'm super happy to have him on. And I think we had a great discussion, which people can listen to now. So without much more ado, Michael Duhame. Welcome, Mike Duhame. Mike, it's really great to have you on with us. And um, as, as we mentioned, you have worked at the national level for many years. You, you managed Rudy Giuliani's presidential campaign. You were the political director for John McCain's presidential campaign. You were at the RNC. You've been an advisor to virtually every Republican committee. Um, and, and literally for our generation, I think, in the last 15 years, 20 years. So explain right now what is happening to the Republican Party, because I think for, for Democrats, like me, it's a little confusing to, and a little bit of a shell shock to go from what I've always grown up with, which is this Reagan-esque, small government, um, somewhat interventionist party um, of free trade, to very quickly, in the last few years, this whiplash of a president who doesn't really stand much for that. And, and I'm, I'm wondering how the Republican Party is grappling with those two tenets of its, of its policies. Yeah. Well, thanks, Julie. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for having me on. And that, that resume sounds like I can't really hold a job, but I swear I can hold a job uh, for more than a year or two or a campaign or two. I think what's happening is uh, there has always been a populist pull in the Republican Party. And I think there's one in the Democrat Party as well. I think there's been this populist pull uh, and and a bit of a frustration at the quote unquote elites. And I think what Donald Trump was able to do uh, is really tap into that in a way that uh, others hadn't done before. And in a way that others who'd been through around politics thought was crazy, right? You don't attack John McCain, you don't attack George W. Bush, you don't attack uh, these people who had been the most successful Republicans, but he tapped into something. And I think he really benefited from what was a very large field where he got a smaller percentage of the of the vote than Bernie Sanders got in the Democrat primary, but because he was he was the only one that was different. There were a bunch of governors and senators, and in many ways they ended up sounding the same. I cut taxes, so did you. We all cut taxes. We voted for this tax cut. I brought in 200,000 jobs. I brought in 202,000 jobs, and he was the one who sounded dramatically different. And he was willing to go very hard on immigration, which was obviously an untapped uh, uh, frustration within Republican electoral politics, obviously. But once you win, uh, this is like a sporting event. Most people just put the jersey on and root for their team. Many people who I knew who were very frustrated with Donald Trump and angry with Donald Trump and didn't like Donald Trump during the primary are now his most ardent supporters because they view this as a binary choice. It's Republicans versus Democrats, and therefore I'm going to be with the Republican. And for better or worse, in our system of government, we don't have a parliamentary system of government. The president, whoever it is, becomes the leader of that party, whether it's the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. So right now, Donald Trump is very popular among Republicans. Uh, he's got very high approval ratings in Republican primary voters. And not just like, quote unquote, the base, which I think it's derogatorily phrased that often. He is he has good numbers among Republicans across the board. And many of them believe in the narrative that the Democrats are out to get him. The 
government is out to get him, the media is out to get him, and they just kind of rally around their own, and that's what we're seeing with Republicans. So he's he was successful in many ways in the general election because he was the lesser of two evils. Uh, many Republicans who were very reluctant about Donald Trump could never support Hillary Clinton, and they looked at him and said, he's a businessman. He'll surround himself with good people around the business. They, they certainly believed the brand, the Trump brand that was out there. And once he got in, for the most part, the troops just rallied around him, and that's what you're seeing continue. You think that's true? You think he did surround himself with the kind of people that Republicans console themselves with believing he'd, he'd wrap himself around? I think in some cases, yes, but in too many cases, no. I do I do know people who work in the administration or work in the White House who are very good and are dedicated to the country, um, and the, most of those are names you would never have heard of and, and won't know. Uh, I do think in too many cases— um, he listens to some of the wrong people and hasn't put the best people in place. Obviously, uh, as you know, I've, I've worked for Governor Christie and his campaigns in New Jersey and, and nationally as well. And I think Donald Trump and his team made an enormous mistake by literally throwing out the work that he had done on the transition team. <clears throat> had Governor Christie's transition uh, memos been followed, Flynn uh, would never have been, uh, had never been in the cabinet. He would have never been sworn in, and therefore uh, would never have started some of these cascading effects that, that happened with him. And that's just one example. There are many mistakes that they made with some people who they brought in early on who really didn't understand government, how to run government, how to uh, pragmatically get uh, implement policy. I think that's uh, that was a big mistake. So I think uh, I don't know if the president would admit it publicly, but I think even people close to him would admit he made some very poor hiring decisions at the outset. Let's talk about that because Chris Christie is, is a very good example of a very mainstream, um, respected in the party Republican. Um, certainly, at a time, probably the biggest star in the Republican Party um, in, in within the last decade for sure. Um, somebody who somebody like Henry Kissinger was asking to run. For president in 2012, somebody like Nancy Reagan um, was asking to run for president, and then Chris Christie uh, went to New Hampshire, where I think he put a lot of you, you did his campaign, Mike, so you could speak to this much better than I can. But put a lot of stake into New Hampshire, didn't do as well as he hoped, um, and and Iowa, and ultimately dropped out. It was really the first mainstream Republican to give legitimacy to Donald Trump um, by endorsing him when he dropped out. I, I would hope. The calculus is not just that he assumed that Trump would win, so he wanted to get on the winning side. I assume that the governor made some sort of accommodation with his own beliefs and himself about that. Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. I think uh, there, there's, there one was a political reality of what was happening, and I think Governor Christie understood it before most people in the party understood that he was on his way to winning. And two was they had a personal relationship for 15 years, and he believed that he could help Donald Trump not only win, uh, but govern, and that Donald Trump did need people around him who understood how to govern, and that Governor Christie believed he could be somebody who could help him not only in the rest of the campaign, but in, in ultimately if he was successful in governing. I think the political calculus, you know, many people believe that Donald Trump had, had beaten the establishment. Many of the establishment folks ran, but most of the establishment that didn't ran, run sat on their hands until it was too late. The vast majority of governors never endorsed. The vast majority of members of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives did not endorse. The vast majority of major Republican fundraisers did not endorse. If you remember Mitt Romney, who probably could have been the closest thing to a kingmaker we would have, did not endorse anybody um, during the campaign. These were these were major mistakes that were made, and many of those folks then started to come out of the woodwork after South Carolina. After South Carolina, as you know. Once somebody wins two of the first three primaries, that person in either party has, has never lost. So Donald Trump, not only did he win two of the first three primaries, he won two of them, by, but the ones he won were by double digits. In Iowa, he barely lost. And so when you win a New England state by double digits and a southern state by double digits and you come very close in Iowa, you are on your way to winning the nomination. That was when many of the mainstream folks came out and started to then endorse Jeb and then endorse Marco Rubio. Governor Christie, politically smart, said it's over um this is over i was i was on the phone with him the night of the watching the south carolina results came in and said this is it it's over no one is coming to back to beat this guy at this point and um, he was right and so uh, at that point he looked at the field and said he obviously didn't believe that some of the other folks were ready that became clear in some of the debates and donald trump was somebody who he'd known for 15 years and was a good friend and felt that he could get in um, and be helpful. And obviously, I thought I thought Trump thought the same thing by putting him in charge of the transition. Obviously, after he won, that went awry. But those, that was the calculus behind it. 
How do you excite younger and newer voters? Because right now I feel like you have the Republican Party who has this base that they're pandering to. But I see a lot with the Democratic Party, they're exciting a lot of new voters with AOC, with people like that. And how do you kind of relay the message in a new way if you're advising another candidate to young Republican voters or voters who would vote Republican who right now aren't or aren't excited by someone like a Donald Trump who's not really represented? I would actually take a little issue with the premise of your question in that right now it looks like about 60 to 70 percent of the vote in the Democrat primary is going to two nearly 80 year old white guys. That's for sure. Um, right. And so you've got, you know, uh, you, you, there are some ideas that are exciting to people. But like if, if, if you want to take AOC's excitement with young people and put it up against on the national stage, Republicans would love it. Yes, you're going to get the excitement of young people and then you will get destroyed in a general election in a district that is outside of hers. Um, but to Emily's question, Nancy that's Pelosi. that's not a long-term strategy, though, right? right? Like, you want to capture this generation now. Both parties want to capture this generation now. And I think the Democrats are, are doing that much more effectively in getting people's voting, even if it's just for the House seats, they're getting them voting much younger and getting more inci- excited in politics. Because if you start voting at 18 or 22, you're going to be way more likely to vote as opposed to, you know, coming on later on, and I don't see the Republicans doing that. Well, I, I agree that voting's habitual, but I would just say that, that what you're saying historically has not always borne true, even in very recent history. Barack Obama uh, had historic turnout, the best turnout in the history of the country, money of that catapulted by young people and first-time voters ever, and then the following decade was the worst decade electorally that you could imagine for, for Democrats. Um, after, after he won, Republicans, <laughs> 10 years later, had more Republican governors than they had in 100 years, control of the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House, and the President of the United States. And so Barack Obama brought a lot of folks in, and then they left. They they came back, though. One or the other. But they came out, um, and then maybe they came out this year, or maybe they they didn't. I don't, I don't, not all the data is in on that yet. I think what you saw in the most recent year was independence swinging dramatically away from Donald Trump and, and letting that known in the House. But that doesn't answer your full question in terms of what Republicans can be doing. Republicans do need to be doing something more positively. And I think part of the, this is Republicans have never been the most you know exciting party. A lot of our a lot of our messaging, you know, AOC like she's exciting because she wants to give everything away <laughs> to young people, right? If you say, hey, by the way, college can be free and all your debt can be wiped out, that is more exciting than the other party that says, by the way, that's irresponsible. Uh, we can't do that. So we're the party that oftentimes is saying no to some of those irresponsible things. And does that mean that younger folks are not going to be as excited? Yes. But will they vote Republican when they're in their 30s? Yes. And well, so part of it is taking that responsible approach. I, I, I I'm, not, I'm, not sure, a, I'm not sure, Mike, that they're saying that it's irresponsible. I think what they're saying is we can prioritize what we spend money on, right? And what the things that Republicans want to spend money on I mean, it's not like this Republican Party has particularly been fiscally responsible with the debt. Um, you've got tax cuts, which are flowing primarily to the wealthy, um, which is indisputable, uh, which are blowing through the debt. So it's not like the future millennials will not be paying off that debt for the rest of their lives. Um, so I think it's a question of do we want to have this for tax cuts for corporations and for rich people, or do you want to have this so that more people can afford to go to college? I think that's where the narrative becomes lost. Um, it's a question of priorities. It's a question of choices. And I'm not even putting my finger in the scale as to which one is right and which one is wrong, although I think um, you know where I stand. But I think if you're selling a message, which is really what you and I are in the business of doing um, on the political side, it's it's a tough message to sell um, to millennials who grew up primarily fighting foreign, paying for foreign wars that have been going on for the rest of their, for their entire lives, um, going to college, which is becoming progressively more unaffordable, um, having massive student debt when they get out, living at home longer because they can't afford to get their own place to live. Um, a lot of them graduating into a recession a few years ago. So, you know, it's, it's, I understand where they're coming from when they're saying, why is it always us? We're always the ones who get screwed. And yet the rich keep getting richer because of these policies that, that the Republicans keep championing, whether it was George Bush with the tax cuts 15 years ago or it's Donald Trump now. Well, I think uh, one point I will, I, will, I will agree on is I think Republicans can be 
more aspirational, more hopeful at times. And instead of saying, as I was just kind of saying, well, we can't wipe out your college debt, we can talk about the opportunity you get and, and why it is worth it and why if you're successful and the opportunity that you're given in this country is that you're going to be able to pay that back and getting an education. We can help more people get an education, which is going to help you ultimately be successful. There is no greater um, indicator still in this country of economic success than a four-year college degree in terms of the difference it makes uh, in that. And we should be championing that and there's some element of that saying that it's it's worth it to make this investment in yourself and so i think we can tackle some of those issues in a bit more positive light as opposed to a more negative light in terms of the tax cuts going to the wealthy and all that i live in a state as you know julia that's very heavily taxed democrats democrats have been uh i think largely responsible for that when you cut anybody's taxes the wealthy pay a disproportionate amount of the taxes and therefore when there are tax cuts they're going to disproportionately benefit i guess if you were to cut tax rates across the board so i realize that is it, it works from a political argument but from a policy point of view you can't argue with the fact that after the tax cuts went through most recently on the federal level and i have issues with some of them as a as a northeastern republican i think some of the the salt deductions or the state and local tax deductions were a mistake but you really can't argue with the success that's going on right now we have the great jobs numbers out just today uh we have uh lowest unemployment across the board hispanic voters i just heard today hispanic uh, uh citizens have the lowest unemployment in the history of tracking this which goes back to the early 1970s so the economy is working and that's part of uh for all the the good rhetoric on tax cuts going to the wealthy something's working well and that's probably why uh you know, Donald Trump is still uh, doing as well as he is. I know he's not broadly popular, but he's certainly strong among Republicans. And I've recently seen some pretty good numbers with him, especially when it comes to the economy. And as you know, whether you're an incumbent for governor or president, as the economy is going, that's really going to indicate how you're going. Uh, well, this kind of has to do with messaging, but an idea that's really spreading across my generation, millennials and younger, is the idea that you cannot be socially liberal and support the GOP anymore. Because what you're telling me is you're saying your tax rate is more important than supporting a party that's essentially anti-LGBTQ, white supremacist, anti-women, and xenophobic. So what is your kind of idea? Because growing up in Florida, I'd see a lot of people being like, I'm fiscally conservative but socially liberal. I don't think that can exist today because if you're socially liberal, you can't support a party that is actively putting down LGBTQ people, women, minorities. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm not someone who agrees to paint either party with such a broad brush. Uh, I think, listen, I think not only the president, but others in our party could be stronger in condemning um, some of the acts that we've seen in terms of white nationalists and such. But I also I also just know that not everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a racist. And, and if anybody thinks so, that's essentially bigoted in their own way. Um, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they look at. Things. No, just uh, fiscally, if just it's for just civil rights. But if you vote for and get a Republican in office, very likely they're going to put someone in the Supreme Court who is going to not allow gay people to get married or overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, listen, I'm a Republican who's also a member of the Human Rights Campaign, right? right. Like, I I've, I've went in, in 2000. But how can uh, we get that 100. message across for Republicans? Because right now, I think I you just like... have to, like, be yourself. Someone like me has to be unafraid to speak about it. In 2002, when I was executive director of the state party, I went to a rally that supported same-sex marriage in New Jersey. That was while Hillary Clinton was against same-sex marriage and Barack Obama was against same-sex marriage. And you couldn't find many people in either party that were for it. I tried to lead by example. I'm not any major player in the world, but that's what you have to do. And I think as someone who's picking a party, some of the things that you just talked about, like I find abhorrent. Uh, and but at the same time, I don't think I think Bernie Sanders is a threat to our system of government. And so we live in a place where in a country where we have to make a choice ultimately between the two parties. Now we can try to fix that. You know, good luck in fixing that. But I, I believe at the end of the day, we have to make choices about which party we support or which. And obviously, I voted Democrat, just like I'm sure, you know, other people who are Democrats who have voted Republican in the past. But ultimately, you have to look for a philosophy of government. And at some point, people weigh certain things higher than others, um, whether that's their own personal economy or their own personal social beliefs. People make choices on different things, and I think it, I think to paint a broad brush that um, somebody who votes Republican therefore tolerates all this, I think is incorrect. There are plenty of Republicans who don't, and you can fight that fight from the inside, or you can throw rocks from the outside. And I think people like me have chosen to, at some level to try.
try to fight it from the inside and make positive change from within. You know, that's actually, you, you raise a good point because I've known you for a long time, Mike, and, and I certainly can vouch for your body when it comes to all of that. But I feel like um, whether it's true or not that the Republican Party is comprised of more people like you or more people like Steve Bannon, for example, um, the perception is that the loudest voices in the room who are defining the Republican Party today are the Steve Bannons of the world. I'm using him as an example, but, but any of these people who are surrounding uh, the president right now. And I can't envision somebody like you um, with your background tolerating, as you said, a lot of the things that come out of the president's mouth and, and certainly his supporters' mouth. So uh, where does somebody like you, and there are so many people like you, I mean, you're not a lone wolf in your party. Um, I, I can name hundreds of like you. I mean, Dana Perino, who I worked with, Fox News is like you, and she was George Bush's press secretary. I mean, plenty of people are um, moderate Republicans the same way there are plenty of people who are moderate Democrats, but where does somebody like you go, or, or people of your ilk, um, when they see the party increasingly defined by Donald Trump? And it may be, look, if Bernie Sanders becomes president, a lot of people will feel uncomfortable in the Democratic Party being defined by, by his brand of politics as well. We can have that discussion when and if he ever becomes president. But right now, Donald Trump is president. He is the leader of the party in a way that Bernie Sanders or AOC is not for the Democrats, um, although it remains to be seen that maybe they will be one day. So what happens? Is this is Trump a temporary blip, or is this really the future where your three children, if they choose to be Republican when they grow up, will choose to join a party that is reflective of, of the Donald Trumps of the world and not the Mike Duhames of the world? I'm not sure they will, to your point, I think, because uh, right now they will look at Donald Trump as the as the party. That's just natural of it. And I, I think what's happening, and, and I don't want to say like I'm, a, I'm someone who's a political operative, right? So I've worked in the game. I think for people who are, if you will, not involved but are, have a similar ideology or philosophy, I think many of them have left the party. I don't think they've gone to the Democrat Party. I think they've become independent or undeclared voters at this point where they now think of themselves as independent. Many of them will vote Republican when given a binary choice, uh, but now choose not to affiliate uh, with the party. There is a there is a, a stigma now um, on the party. I, I mean, I, I think we've all seen some of these studies where people, you know, parents fear their children marrying someone of the opposite party. <laughs> or, um, it's it's become this, it's taken the place of so many other kind of societal issues we've had in the past and how this, how, how this is viewed. So um, I think many people who are not actively involved in politics have actually left the party. I do think the party is smaller um, than it once was, but in many ways they've been replaced by other folks who have come out of the woodwork. I mean, there were people who, voted in 2016, and I believe voted for Donald Trump, who had not voted before. Um, and so the party may be the same size, but it has changed tremendously. And uh, what's going to be next after Donald Trump? I don't know. Donald Trump is very different than George W. Bush. So it's hard to say that there'll be a continuation or there'll be a shift. I don't know. Right? George H.W. Bush was very much a continuation of Ronald Reagan. Donald Trump is very different than the standard bearers before him, whether it was George W. Bush or even the nominees who didn't win, John McCain and Mitt Romney. He, Donald Trump is very different, so I, I don't think you can predict one from the next. I think there will be a massive civil war within the party next time there's an open seat for president. Well, uh, that I think th that will decide the future, or at least the temporary future. Let's talk about your old boss, Rudy Giuliani, because I know you're still very loyal to him, but I have questions <laughs> about Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Rudy Giuliani, um, I'm old enough to remember when he was mayor of New York, was, uh, as Emily said, socially liberal um, and fiscally conservative, or, or at least tried to be. I don't know how socially liberal he was with respect to African-Americans or anybody else. But I mean, he, you know, look, he wasn't, he was a pro-choice, um, uh, live and let live kind of guy, um, at least generally. And there were elements of him that I think were reflective of Trump's views on race, um, you know, he, he was certainly not known for, for his racial politics in New York. Um, but there were elements of, of him that were very different from Trump. And then to watch him kind of fall in line with Donald Trump against his former office, um, the, the Southern District of New York, the Justice Department, the FBI. I mean, he was the law and order mayor. He was the proponent, the face of law enforcement, not just in New York, but really around the country for so many years. Um, and to watch him rhetorically go against the very things that made his career, whether it was um, 
the Justice Department or, or law enforcement or um, the honesty of, of, of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. For Donald Trump, it doesn't ring true to me except for political expediency and maybe a couple of contracts thrown his lobby, his way for this consulting firm. So am I misreading something? Is there more to it? Did he have a late in life crisis change? What happened no, to Rudy? Think, well, I think, I think, first of all, Rudy's legacy is quite secure. People can judge this last chapter and will likely judge it through their partisan lens and their view on Donald Trump. I think many of Donald Trump supporters love what Rudy's been doing and Donald Trump's detractors hate it. Uh, but his legacy, I think, is fairly secure given that uh, most major cities around the country followed what he did in New York and implemented his policies, and many still do. Bill de Blasio, for the most part, still does, um, except we got rid of laws against public urination for some reason, but I digress. So <laughs> you, um, you shouldn't digress because there's a guy not far from where I live who engages in that every five minutes and I really wish they'd bring those right. laws Somehow back. I but, don't know yeah. where he's gone on that. Well, it's, it's okay, Mike, because, because I hear de Blasio is announcing for president next week, so New York's problems well, are all solved. Join, join the party. There's yeah. plenty, of people, plenty of people running. Why not? So I think, Liz, I think Rudy's legacy is secure from his time as U.S. attorney to his time as mayor to obviously September 11th. So I'm not worried tremendously about that. I actually think Rudy, even though I think many people who are Trump uh, haters will, will hate will hate this, I think Rudy um, should probably take a victory lap. And it doesn't see that. But like he took on the defense job. He, you know, he left his law firm to go work for Donald Trump for free because he's been his friend forever. And. Um, believes in him as a as a person. They've been friends for a very long time. I don't think you can divorce the two of those things. I mean, they've been friends for decades in, in New York uh, world, and went to go work and with the entire world watching and, and predicting that Mueller had all of these things, Rudy was uh, kind of in their face and believed that they didn't have the case, and he was unafraid to say it out loud. And at the end of the day, uh, no one has taken legal action against the president. Well, they so can't. They, you know, they can't. Not well, yet. I can, but, they, but I don't see that coming either, right? I well, mean, we could. See, I don't think you see the Democrats about to impeach him, do you? You know, I, I'm, I'm seeing that the Democrats are moving closer in that direction. I think there's a, a, a sense in the party that maybe Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and others who've been around a very long time have missed, which is that people expect him to be held accountable. They understand the Justice Department can't hold a president accountable while he's in office. They understand that they can't risk um, him getting reelected and therefore the statute of limitations being up to prosecute him criminally um, under the Justice Department guidelines. So I think the only way a lot of Democrats feel that he would be brought to justice is if you started impeachment proceedings. And, and I'm not so sure that Nancy Pelosi can hold back that tide. Um, but I, I may be wrong about that. I don't know. I think it's, it's well, too to soon this to tell. Point, to this point, I think, given where people thought this was going a year ago and where it is today, um, I'm not saying from a PR point of view, from a legal point of view, the president seems to be through it. There's no collusion. Mueller, or at least no, Mueller has reached no, no uh, decision on obstruction. And so I think you can say he's done well. Also, I'll just say this from a from Rudy kind of political point of view, he's back in the mix. This is a guy who was uh, uh, certainly a hero mayor, maybe the most popular figure in America after that point. And in many ways, even before that, one of the most consequential elected officials we had in America, probably for the second half of the 20th century in terms of how he governed New York and how that was copied across major cities all over America. This is a guy who's been incredibly consequential. Um, and who likes to be in the mix and always unafraid to put his political capital on the line. I was with him in the post-September 11th years and in his run-up for mayor, excuse me, for president. And many people, I would hear them say to him, like, you should have just kind of ridden off into the sunset. Like, why did you endorse, endorse George W. Bush in 2004? A lot of Democrats who liked you in New York now don't like you because of that. And why did you run for president? And, you know, in the, in the, in the race for president, he was way too moderate for the Republican Party. But everybody in New York thought all of a sudden he was way too conservative. Right. So he ends up winning no friends and doing that and then doing this with Donald Trump. The thing that I admire about Rudy is he's unafraid to put his own political capital on the line to help other people, to support other people and causes that he believes in. So, yes, if he never did anything from September 11th, 2001 until today, he would be still a heroic, uh, monumentally popular figure. But he decided over the last 17, 18 years now to put his political capital on the line to help people that he believed in, starting with Mike Bloomberg right after, and then you know now to Donald, all the way to Donald Trump today. So I admire that he's been unafraid to do that. I know that he has taken on a lot of heat for that, 
but I also know he enjoys it. He enjoys being in the mix. He enjoys the intellectual sparring with uh, TV hosts and, and people on the other side. And ultimately, the president is still the president, and he owes some debt of that, I think, to Rudy. I mean, intellectual sparring, I, I think it's just been yapping back the same no collusion and in, in, in saying things that have been that have gotten him in trouble and that haven't been in line with what the presidency has legally said. I I don't know what point it's at where you're helping a friend and then where you're just being a yes man. Because I think sometimes friendship is important to be like, mm, we should we should hold off. I, I think there's a line by being becoming the yes man and just becoming the face of something and then becoming yeah he's kind of becoming a sarah sanders of this of the outside group of this administration to some extent well when you take when you take on a client legally especially i mean you're you are that person's advocate and people may not like it or not but he is the president's advocate in this so i don't he's not going on tv shows to provide independent commentary like most people who show up on these TV shows and nobody knows who they are and they put, you know, legal strategists or Republican or Democrat strategists on their name. He is an advocate for the president and the president's point of view legally on this matter. So I'm not sure if you're expecting something different when he's on TV, but that's not certainly not his role in this case. Are you um, envisioning that whoever runs for president next time uh, on the Republican side, whether it's 2024 or, or earlier, depending on what happens with Trump, um, that that person, like Christie, will have to really thread a line between having supported Trump for president, as Christie has, but also having a semblance of independence, as Christie's always had. I mean, to some extent, Christie's, I think, done a good job of, of, of placating both sides by saying, look, there are issues where I agree with him, there are issues where I've called him out. Um, and he's done that more and more, I think, as he's realized maybe the door is closing and him joining the administration in the capacity he wants to join it. Is that a smart strategy, or do you think that whoever the nominee will be next will have to be almost such a massive Trump acolyte that any disagreement is going to be seen as a disloyalty to the party? I think I think it'll depend where we are in three years or four years. I, I think I don't think it'll be seen as disloyal. Certainly, 2008, President George W. Bush was not popular at that point. The economy had turned. The Iraq and uh, the war in Iraq was was not popular, and. You didn't hear people bashing President Bush, but you didn't hear people saying they were going to be continuation of. They, they, I think they tried to th thread the needle, as as you're saying. I think it was much more like that. It's hard to envision where Donald Trump will be, most likely. And even at that time, President George W. Bush was popular among Republicans, but not, you know, broadly so. And there wasn't dramatic, you know, intensity behind that popularity, even among the base, which which was still supportive of him. So I, I think most people, when you run for president, ultimately you have to be yourself. Um, Donald Trump proved that he, he was out there and he's completely himself. And that authenticity uh, was very well received by voters. Uh, and I think it's hard to thread, to, to, to thread that needle. If you look at Al Gore in 2000, he had a very difficult time between uh, Bill Clinton, who was personally popular at the time, but obviously had had his share of scandal, had a very strong economy at the time. And he very much ran away from Bill Clinton, or, or it seemed to me at least to distance himself more than he needed to, and then ultimately was unsuccessful. So it's not easy, um, even I guess even in popular times like uh, like Al Gore in 2000, President Clinton was still fairly popular and the economy was quite strong. Even then, he was very much trying to carve his own image, even as the person's vice president. Uh, the last person who really, I think, was successful in trying to be that continuation was George H.W. Bush in 1988, which very much seemed to be a continuation. Even though that campaign obviously took on a life of its own, it was seen much more as a continuation of President Reagan. I think after four years, It'll be a pretty fresh, if, if the president were to be reelected, I think you have a pretty uh, fresh take on the party and you'd have a pretty bitter fight in time. And I think many people would be trying to be the next Donald Trump because there will be a path to victory that includes that. And then there will be other people saying, no, we need to move in a certain direction or representing kind of a, a new wing of the party or different take at least. Well, you raise an interesting question, right? You could have 10 guys who are or women who are, none of whom are trying to be the next reincarnation of Trump. And the irony would be if the one guy who squeezed through would be like Trump, the guy who's something else entirely like a John Kasich. Well, I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of what, what happened if, 
in the presidential primary for the Republicans, Donald Trump was very different. And even though he got a small percentage of the vote, and, and I think look what happened in the New York City mayoral primary. Bill de Blasio, I think, very much carved out his own niche as the most liberal person in the in the in the primary and and won. Sometimes it is the person who's different. Then even if the majority of the party is in one place, if that majority gets split up ten ways and one other person, you obviously can win these very crowded fields with a small percentage of the vote. If you look ahead of the Democratic primary now, Bernie Sanders may not be broadly popular among Democrats, but if he gets 30 percent of the vote in New Hampshire, he's going to win. Uh, so those are those are things I, uh, that make these crowded fields very interesting and what they mean as they go further in terms of how they define the party. For the record, I voted for Bill de Blasio in the primary because he promised to get horses off of Central Park South. And I felt sorry for them because they were dropping dead like flies in the summer. But um, eight years later, almost they're still there. So Bill de Blasio, I'm sorry I made that vote for him it's took that vote amazing sometimes i also uh well very different i i'm old enough to remember when president obama said that we were going to close guantanamo bay when he ran and it is still open so you know but it's interesting mike you and i do this for a living and we sit there and we poll and we we, we look at nuances and then i come along in my real life my non sort of strategic life and vote on something that has nothing whatsoever to do with things that democrats <laughs> broadly might care about but, uh, also, I think you know, there's an element of, and I don't, I haven't, I haven't studied the horse issue in New York. Although my mom would very much agree with you and applaud your vote. Oh, thank you. That being the reason to vote, but sometimes governing is harder than campaigning. We're seeing in New Jersey with Phil Murphy and a lot of the things he promised, and he's just not getting them done. Even broadly, that some of the Democrats here agree with him on, they can't, they can't pragmatically get anything done. And I think you see that certainly on the national level, even with the best of intentions, sometimes you can't fulfill every promise because governing is a lot harder than campaigning. That's for sure. What do you think is the number, the number one issue I feel for this election will be the economy, but what is the number two issue if you were advising Democrats to focus on? Because I don't think Mueller is really polling very well in the middle of the country. Uh, So what would you suggest for Democrats to focus on number two behind the economy? That's a great question. I think healthcare. I think Democrats have been very successful on healthcare. I think in many ways the 2012 re-election for President Obama was a referendum on Obamacare uh, to the extent that there was an issue beyond Mueller that played heavily, I believe, in many of these congressional races where Democrats were successful last year. It was it was health care and the threat of Republicans changing health care. It's interesting. Most people are happy with their health care, right? Unless you've had a major run in with your insurance company, you're happy with your health care. And so in 2010, when it looked like President Obama was changing people's health care, there was a rebellion against that. But then it went through and people were happy and comfortable. And then when you're going to change it, there was a rebellion against that. So I think Democrats... Um, were successful on healthcare, have been. It's a it's an area where more voters trust Democrats than Republicans. And so if if I were a Democratic strategist or candidate, I think healthcare is a an issue that would be one that brings success. Um one last question for you before we wrap up. If Donald Trump does not run again in twenty twenty, um, and Chris Christie chooses to forego the primary Tell me who you think is sort of the great hope of the Republican Party. Who's a Republican that, that we haven't focused on around the country that we should be looking at as somebody who's, who's the future of the party? It doesn't have to be somebody, it doesn't have to be somebody you're, you're getting behind, just somebody to keep an eye on. Like if somebody had asked me about Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, a few years ago, I would have said, yeah, keep an eye on him, but only because I had a friend who managed his campaign for DNC chair where he failed miserably. Um, but but the buzz was sort of starting to come up about him. So who's the Mayor Buttigieg of the Republican Party who one day, potentially, maybe not in 2020, maybe in 24 or 28, could be the guy or the woman? I think I think, I think Mayor, Mayor Pete is, is, is a very interesting candidate and, and one that I think a lot of sexist brothers support. But now, thank you, I actually now don't have to pronounce his last name because until <laughs> that, I wasn't exactly sure. I'll get and your phonetic spelling. Call him Mayor Pete, for short. Um, it's interesting you say that. I think there there was this entire generation of Republicans that were um, uh, that had kind of come through and were governors for many years, and many of them ran, and they were the next best thing, and now they're gone, whether it's the Scott Walkers of the world, Susanna Martinez of the world. I think someone like Charlie Baker, I think, is still very interesting, the governor of Massachusetts, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. They're much more on the moderate side of things, but I, I'm always attracted to folks who can win in blue states as Republicans. Again, not sure how well they play. I think Nikki Haley is certainly someone to watch. She was the uh, first Indian-American female governor in America. Obviously, she took a much uh, larger role within the Trump administration. 
president was actually very critical of Trump during the primary and then took a role in the administration and I think did so in a way that was outside of some of the skirmishes of domestic policy and really raised her profile. I think Nikki Haley is someone that's going to be really to look at. Again, you have a a woman, um, uh, Indian American woman, not what people expect of the Republican Party. And I think uh, that's somebody I would watch. I would look somebody like a congressman. Dan Crenshaw is someone who right now in the Republican Party is getting a, a lot of notice. He's a, a war hero, speaks fluent Spanish and uh, unafraid to um, kind of take on some of the Democrats in Washington. So he's somebody certainly many Republicans are watching. But I think um, many of this will get defined by the governor's races in the next couple of years. That's really where the governor and Senate race is where a lot of this comes from. Obviously, you still have Marco Rubio out there, who is still relatively young, and obviously a U.S. senator from Florida remains to be seen. Um, that you know, didn't go as well for him last time. But um, you know, those are just a few names off the top of my head. I think Marco Rubio has forever been tarnished by Chris Christie. I'm not kidding. The most effective part besides Trump's election in 2016 was what Christie did to Marco Rubio. Um, and just completely subject of an entire podcast in terms of how uh, governor and our team set that up during the week and prepared for it. And well, uh, you earned every penny because unfortunately for Marco Rubio, at least in my mind, that is all I can think about. Emily's from Florida, so she probably has a different viewpoint, but uh, it was so effective and so devastating in a way that I think only Chris Christie could have done, um, which is why I've always said Chris Christie's best gig on the planet would be to host a Fox News show. He'd be so good at it. They need to put him in prime time. He's just, this is exactly what he's good at, Mike. And I know that you guys wanted to run for president, but I would have just dropped out after the first term and gotten a gig on Fox because that was the perfect forum for him. I'll let him know. I'll yeah. He's doing some TV now. He so. is. He yeah, is. But, but I, I, I feel like ABC's old, it's not up his alley. He's, he's got to go. He's got to go to cable. Or, hey, I don't know how long that contract I'm I'm in no position to negotiate one for him at Fox anymore, but I'm sure, and I'm sure my endorsement of him might not help him. But that was that was exactly the venue for him. I mean, they they put him in prime time. He would have done amazingly well. I've always thought so. No, that that warmed my heart. Um, But I (laughs) we would love to have you back before maybe the next debates and do kind of behind the scenes of how you did that because. I would love to hear That's about true. It. I mean, debate prep, I would love to actually hear, you know, you yeah. and I, I've, I've prepped people, you know, it's interesting. I did both of Cory Booker's debate preps for his two Senate races. And uh, after, after, or maybe during the debate season, I would love to have you back on so we could talk about what you did for Chris Christie. Um, and, and I'm sure you did it for Rudy as well and McCain maybe. And, and, and how it's just, I love prepping candidates for debate. And I think it's vastly different on a presidential level. And I think all of the Democrats are about to learn that, right? If you are um, a U.S. senator or a governor right now, most likely your last debate was a one-on-one debate. And if it was a one-hour debate, you probably got 27 minutes of time between commercials and the host, plenty of time to get your points across. If you're if you're going on for a 90-minute debate right now and you're one of 10 candidates and there are commercials and hosts, you might get four, six, seven minutes of time uh, in a 90-minute debate. And that's very different in terms of preparing for it. How do you stand out? How do you get noticed? How do you get your point across in such a short period of time? It's very different debate prep that the uh, all the Democrats right now in this very crowded field have to get ready for than probably their most recent debate. No question about it. And also how to deal with moderators who are infinitely more um, experienced in doing this level yep. of debate. Than, than the moderators that you see in Kansas on the local affiliate channels or in New Jersey or New York or anywhere else. I agree. Mike Duhame, thank you so much for joining us. It was great, and um, I still really would love to hear your the future of the party candidate. You're, you're a Republican with Ted Judge one day. Give it some thought and let us know. I will. Thank you both All for right. having me on. Really Thanks very fun. much, Mike. Bye. Thanks. Take care. Alrighty, that was a fantastic conversation. I learned a ton, and I'm not salty about the what we have coming up with Mike for a future episode. But anyways, what I am salty about this week is Florida again. Florida's legislature. Florida's like the bane of your. You know how like Florida man is. has become a meme. I just I want it to be better because it's so warm and nice, but everything else is really disgusting. Especially Florida's legislature just passed a bill allowing teachers to carry guns in the classroom. So what it will do, it'll enable school districts wishing to take part in the Voluntary Guardian Program to arm teachers who pass a 144-hour training course. President Donald Trump and the the NRA's logic is that an armed teacher could provide the best defense against a shooter bent on 
mass murder. And this is not true because I remember after Virginia Tech, they did a simulation where they armed students and they armed a lot of people with paintball guns and had a shooter simulations. And what ended up happening was happening was a lot of friendly fire. I also think this 144 hour training is BS because you need way more than that. Are they going to have certain structures to allow teachers to continue training after they pass this course? Because with guns, I've I have my gun license both for New York and for Florida concealed carry that you need to practice shooting. It, it's like a sport. If you don't practice, you're not going to get better. If, if you practiced a ton and played golf when you were 10 and then haven't picked up a club in, f- for years, you're not going to be better. Your, your shot's not going to get better. So same with guns. And what are, you, what are you simulating? Are you simulating having 25 kids in a classroom, right. all of whom, I mean, look, I have, I, have a, I have a first grader. Let me tell you, these kids on a good day without guns involved can't walk a straight line, can't. Um, you know, they're like, they're, they're, they're just growing into their bodies. So right. what are you simulating? Are you simulating shooting at somebody with a bunch of with 20 or 25 or 30, however big the classroom is first graders running around like crazy, um, getting your way, not knowing what to do. This, these are not necessarily rational actors on a good day. Never mind in a stressful situation, like, like a shooting, um, you're going to get more people killed and you're going to get more kids killed. And quite honestly, if I were living in Florida right now, nope. <laughs> I, if I could afford to, I'd send my kids to private school, only if that school guaranteed that their teachers were not armed. If I knew that my teacher was armed, my kid wouldn't be in that classroom. Nope. Because I'd be putting that kid in danger. I say this as the mother of a small child. If I knew that my first graders' teachers were armed, that kid would not, I would pull him out of that school in. 30 seconds. He would never go there again. That is absolutely absurd. And again, for all the people here who are going to be complaining about the fact that I want to, you know, only have the bad guys have guns. No, I don't want anybody with a gun around my child. Never mind somebody who I have no guarantee is like a police officer who knows how to shoot straight. I don't care how much training they've had. Exactly. And, and just uh, to add to that, when I practice shooting, I'm in a shooting range and I have, I have headphones on and I'm in a controlled setting. Again, to your point, when kids are screaming and you have the adrenaline going and you're not in a controlled area and have gunshot in And guess what those flying. kids do, by the way? And I know this from my own kid and all of his friends. When they are in a stressful situation, they run toward the person right. they feel safe. I mean, if, if God forbid there were ever a horrible life-threatening situation and my son were anywhere near me he'd be running towards me right and if he were in a stressful situation i weren't around he'd be running towards his teacher because he's known her all year and he trusts her and he believes in her so the teacher is trying to shoot while a bunch of kids are rushing her or him and hiding behind her legs and running between her legs and and surrounding her no thank you um, I, I got to tell you, Emily, I, I, what is going on with your state? It's like with concealed carry this, this is Florida. I, you know, you think enough New Yorkers would be transplanted down there by now to make it more sane. I don't understand what's going on. Gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is going on, but still this is, I mean, come it's on. Crap. It's, it's, uh, now that we got you nice and salty, I am salty. I'm actually more salty about yours than I am about mine. Although I'm pretty damn salty about mine because, uh, as we're taping this today on a Friday, May 3rd, it turns out that the president of the United States, our president, Donald John Trump had a very long discussion, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, um, Volodya from St. Petersburg, as I refer to him and, um, discussed with him and I quote the Russian hoax. So the president of the United States is talking to our number one geopolitical foe, Vladimir Putin, and basically saying that the findings of our own Justice Department, all our intelligence agencies, and uh, the special counsel, all of whom determined there's no question that the Russians interfered in our elections um, to favor Donald Trump, that they worked very hard to defeat Hillary Clinton, therefore electing Donald Trump, um, that now he's telling Putin that it's, it's a hoax. That, that Putin didn't do what Putin knows he did, and not just Putin knows he did, all of the people who work for Donald Trump know he did. Way to side against your own country with a despot, Donald Trump. Julie, what is Putin saying in his head as this is happening right now? Um, well, I can tell you what useful idiot is in Russian, um, because that's exactly what he's saying. Okay. Um, idiot in Russian is idiot. 
Um, and that is exactly what Putin's saying in Russian. I could also really give you some choice curse words in Russian, but I can guarantee you, I mean, there is like, uh, God, the, the, Putin must be laughing over his blinis every morning, like thinking about this guy. Uh, it's just unbelievable. It's, it's how, and for all these Republicans crying about MAGA and let's make America great and patriotism, this is like the least patriotic thing you can possibly do. Could you imagine, could you just imagine if this were 50 years ago and John Kennedy called Nikita Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis and said, you know, my, my intelligence services are telling me that you've got Cuban, that you've got missiles headed to Cuba, um, but I don't believe it. It's a hoax. I don't believe it. You know what? I, you know, those ships that, that, that everybody's saying, those crates that are heading to Cuba, they're not heading there. I don't believe it. I mean, what is going on? It's, it's, and, and what drives me crazy is because it's in the open and because he talks about it openly, everybody's like, oh, he's got nothing to hide. There's no collusion. There's nothing to hide because he's being out in the open. So is that to say that if I say, Emily, I'm going to murder you 50,000 times and then I murder you, everybody's going to say, well, she's not covering it up because she's actually talking about doing it. He's committing treason. And before everybody tweets me, every time I say he's committing treason, everybody's saying, oh, you want to have him executed because that's what you do to traitors. No, I don't want to have him executed. But it is somewhat treasonous to me to have somebody completely throw our own intelligence services under the bus, especially when that person knows full well that he did what he did. You think Putin's sitting there saying, oh yeah, Putin's like, oh yeah, of course I didn't do it. I mean, uh, like a useful idiot is the only <laughs> expression I could think of, or a village idiot. I don't even know what to say about this. I think our new show, Julie, is, I, have you seen the Key and Peele where they're Obama and then Obama's inner monologue? where one of them just kind of says what's really on Obama's mind. Emily, I am still rewatching old episodes of Game of Thrones. Do you think I've seen real TV well, in the last seven years since I've had a child? And the answer is well, I, have, I have seen a lot of SpongeBob SquarePants, and sometimes I just try to sneak in Game of Thrones. That's the extent. Well, the thing is he says Obama's inner monologue. I would love to see you as Putin sitting there, have a show where you're translating all of Putin's inner thoughts. I think that would be hilarious. Um, if I were in better shape, I would get on a horse. Um, and uh, I guess I can't do it topless the way Putin does it because that would be inappropriate. But um, Or i try to wrestle a bear or do my other Putin weirdo expressions of, of masculinity that he constantly tries to convince everybody of, not to mention the amounts of plastic surgery that he's had on his face. I don't want to do any of that, but I can certainly channel Putin to you, which is that he's just... I just it's it's just amazing to me. It's amazing to me what is I mean Polyasny do it, useful idiot. That's all I could think that he's Wait, thinking. I it's, think we end on you teaching me how to say useful idiot in Russian. Uh, you could just say you do it, which is idiot. idiot which is idiot. I but like that. um it's just it's I, I just I don't understand. I, I just don't understand. It's not that it makes me salty, it makes me bewildered, it makes my head hurt. Um and the way you're salty about Florida all the time, I continue to be salty over this this unbelievable desire by the president of the United States to suck up to Vladimir Putin, who on every demonstrable level is just a bad guy. I, I just don't get it. It makes no sense to me, but I guess, you know, maybe there's money to be made off of Trump Tower Moscow when he gets out of office. I, I don't know what the, what, what the goal, or maybe he just wants to be Putin because Putin does what he wants and takes care of his enemies in his own special way without having to get permission from, you know, his attorney general to go after them. And so who knows? Anyway, that's making me salty. What is not making me salty is that we had a great conversation with Mike Duhame and it's the weekend and I'm almost caught up on Game of Thrones and I'm hopeful by this time next week, we will finally, finally, hopefully be able to discuss it in real time. I am just starting season eight, so I have a lot to catch up on. But um, on that note, I hope everybody has a great week, and you do too. Awesome. Thanks.